1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Conology, the podcast that looks at life through the films of one of the world's greatest anime filmmakers, Satoshi
0: Kon. I'm Michael Leder.
3: And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen the lot of them.
0: And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm trying to find the key to unlocking them. So
2: join us on our quest into the world of Satoshi Kon.
0: Okay, Michael, it's lovely to be back. Um, we'd normally be inside the uh, but we can't really be inside the chronology. But we are at least maybe on chapter two of it. What is going to be on your syllabus for week two?
2: Well, this is quite a straightforward miniseries. We're going chronologically through the chronology. So straight after Perfect Blue, we're going to cover Millennium Actress, which I know in the last episode, Jake, you, sa- you said you'd been told was something like the inverse of perfect blue, it'd be really interesting to know if that actually brought you know bore any truth when you watch the film finally.
0: Yeah, I mean, that kind of set me up expecting. I'm not even sure because perfect blue is so inverted in itself in the first place. I mean, what's one more inversion on that? It's like adding an 11th loop to a 10 looping roller coaster. Um, I'm not really sure if it was necessary, um, but. <laughs> Yeah, Millennium mattress. It definitely is a film directed by the same guy who made Perfect Blue, that's for sure.
2: That is factual. <laughs> and listeners, if you perhaps didn't listen to the Perfect Blue episode, we are going through the four films and one TV series directed by Satoshi Kon in his lifetime. Um they're, they're a bit different from Ghibli films, they're much more adult, not necessarily the one we're going to talk about today, Perfect Blue, definitely an 18 rated film. And we've got, you know, darker stuff to come as well Uh, because these are much more complex films ones without a specific reading that we'll be talking through we've brought producer Steph Watts on board to bring us um, another uh, array of opinions uh, while we try and figure out what these complex films actually mean so Steph you this is of course not your first viewing of Millennium Actress right
3: no yeah I've watched it a few times actually um and well the first few times i tried to watch it i feel like it's so kind of dreamlike that it just sent me to sleep a couple of times um, not in a bad way
0: Well, Lucretia martel would be happy with you there steph
3: exactly she would say i'm i'm comfortable with the content and the film uh, i'm not sure how satoshi kon would have felt about that about me falling asleep but yeah i've watched it a few times now and i feel like it just gets more and more interesting each time i watch it um, i remember saying to you last week jake that i thought you were going to really enjoy this film so i'm interested to see what you thought of it
0: yeah i mean there's there's so much to talk about with this one even we i mean we probably should have been recording the pre-record call that we do as well because we ended up doing <laughs> so much chat on it then as well um but i think it is absolutely essential on this series or from and probably going forward as well from what i know about satoshi kon that uh i'm going to need a synopsis read out of this film and probably read out again and again Uh, And then I'll watch it two more times. And then after that, maybe I'll get a sense of what actually happened. So, Steph, what is this film about?
3: An old film studio goes out of business and is being torn down. Genya Tachibana and his long-suffering cameraman, Kyoji Ida, track down Chiyoko Fujiwara, the studio's best-known star, who is now living as a recluse. When Tachibana gives Chiyoko a key she lost long ago, she reflects on her life, and her memories and the film she starred in become intertwined in a surreal story within a store.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
0: So, Michael, last week you got us all up to speed with Satoshi Kon from birth to Perfect Blue and everything in between in a concise few minutes. Uh, Now, what has happened between Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress?
2: So picking this up in the late 90s, Perfect Blue goes down pretty well. It played well in Japanese cinemas and also international festivals, good reviews as well. So Satoshi Kon was emboldened to continue down this path of innovative experimental storytelling, which was sort of thrust on him by the budgetary requirements, as we talked about in the last episode. Up next, he wanted to make an adaptation of the novel Paprika with the same production studio, um, Rex Entertainment, but they went bust. So that project went away. However, remember the name Paprika for a future episode. <laughs> but then a producer uh, called Taramaki approached Satoshi Kon. Um, he really liked the way that Perfect Blue blurred those lines between fantasy and re- reality. And he referred to that style as uh, Loy. Um which is a term from the art world, literally means a trick to the eye, a sort of optical illusion. And, you know, have you ever seen those big sort of street art pieces where um, an artist has sort of drawn it so it looks like there's some sort of construction where the entire pavement's been dug up and they're just sort of like, teetering on the edge of a hole but actually it's a trick of perspective that's a sort of more contemporary equivalent of this and the producer said that perfect blue because of the varying perspectives and the way the film tricks you that's like a trompe l'oeil film um, apologies to any french listeners there's a documentary on the dvd of millennium actress where uh, Tara Mackey, um says that the, you know, the a trompe film differs depending on which angle you view it from. So he said to Satoshi to Kon, I want to produce your next film if you make another film like that. Which is re- really interesting, right? So it's not just, you know, let's, let's find another project that was similarly dark and uh, stunning and striking in the way that Perfect Blue was. No, let's just do another one where we can mess with the viewer. And so Khan was intri- intri- intrigued by that. He had a few ideas bubbling around, and he settled on on this one, um, Millennium Actress. For this context, I'd like to shout out a few newcomers or returning characters that are, that are behind the scenes. Um, con developed the screenplay from his two-line kernel of an idea with the returning screenwriter from Perfect Blue, Sadayuki Murai, although Khan is co-screenwriter with him on this. Um, also returning from Perfect Blue is Hideki Himasu, the animator, who between those two films went away and worked on both My Neighbours, The Yamadas, and Spirited Away. Um, and later on, pretty much every Ghibli film following. Um, and the even on Mary and the Witch's Flower for Studio ponok and then also Your Name. So just basically, he's worked on pretty much every anime that, that you like from the last 30 years. <laughs> um that starts off this really fascinating thing. If you dig into the credits on every con film, there are many animators who would, between con projects, go and work with G- on Ghibli films. Um, a newcomer on Millennium Actress is Toshiyuki Inoue, um, who had uh, worked previously on Akira and Kiki's delivery service in the space of two years. You know, no big deal. Um, they'd work, with, as, as would with a lot of, lots of the animation directors and key animators, on many con projects to come. Another newcomer behind the scenes is Susumu uh, the musician, who would go on to be the composer on every Con film from here on. Um, he was a musician for many years beforehand. Con was a fan, would listen to his music while writing and working, um, sort of uh, like art rock, prog rock, multi-genre, spanning composer. And he isn't really a, a traditional composer either in, in terms of like, some of the stylistic choices he makes for Millennium Actress. So the film is premiered in july 2001 at the fantasia film festival in canada like perfect blue was um and it won the best animated film award there. It's also played at the Sitges uh, festival film festival which any sort of genre film fan will tell you is like one of the best festivals in the world for fantasy or horror or any weird stuff like that so a really great place to situate con um it didn't come out in Japan for another year after that, um, in early 2002. Um, It also had a small release in the States later in 2002. It was well-received. It got good reviews from critics, and it picked up a few end-of-year awards in Japan. Um, It didn't come out in the UK, and it didn't come out until 2005 when it went straight to DVD. And if you think about the timeline there, Millennium Actress didn't come out in the UK in terms of in, in a wide way, until both Tokyo Godfathers and Paranoia Agent, the TV series, had been released in the UK. So, this is this for many years was almost seen as the missing piece of the puzzle for con fans. Um, and because of that, it's developed a bit of a reputation as something of a hidden gem in its filmography. But I suppose the big question, Jake, is is this a hidden gem in your eyes?
3: So, Jake, you said when you sat down to watch this film, you could immediately tell that it was by the same director. What was the first clue?
0: Um, Well, it's right in the first 30 seconds of the film. Uh, As with Perfect Blue, we open with a kind of sci-fi genre-y piece in the very beginning. In Perfect Blue, it was that kind of Gundam, Power Rangers-y type anime. And here we start in a rocket ship uh, battle among the stars type film. In fact, I'm convinced that the opening shot of this is a direct reference to Star Wars. It features a looking down on a planet and a slow moving spaceship that takes up most of the screen moving across the sky and then a circle within a circle on a moon shaped uh, star base. Uh, if that's not a Death Star reference, I don't know what is. Um, <laughs> But we have this world, and I think, oh, this is very cool. No one told me it's a space film. Um, but they did tell me that it's a Satoshi Kon film. So, of course, this is not the film I'm watching. This is just a film within the film that I'm watching. Uh, and then we're dragged back from this into our own reality. But, of course, there's an earthquake sound in the film, and then there's an earthquake sound in our reality, and we're, we're starting to blend all of these things together. And I think, oh, yeah, okay, right. We're right at home here. It's like, this is like when i switch on a ghibli and there's a nice blue sky and a green field Uh, okay i understand where i am again something i love about the opening sequence of this film is there's a wonderful train journey to the countryside in daylight which is almost like a ghibli film yeah i mean a bit weird if ghibli made this film but i mean there's some stuff that we can recognize and i wonder
2: jake i really liked how you put it in the previous episode about how um this fractured non-linear overlapping style of storytelling that con develops around perfect blue that he brings over to this film i think he perfects in this film where no scene really ends traditionally this free-flowing structure scenes just tumble in one into the next i wonder did you respond to that in this film as well
0: yeah absolutely um the momentum of this film is phenomenal you it, it just doesn't stop And not in a Safdie Brothers type way where it is all claustrophobia and sweat and anxiety. Um, This is deploying some of the tactics that animation can give you that live action can't to just keep you wrapped in a story. And that you're not doing trick camera matches to carry on a scene a la Birdman or something like that. Um, You are just overlapping and overlapping and overlapping and constantly just keeping your viewer engaged um i suppose it's would it be more like a like a a tapestry than the the scrapbook that perfect blue might be where it's like almost violent in that editing style that's a
2: very beautiful way of putting it jake <laughs> I think you might have already answered this question that I had for you, which I almost want to ask with pretty much everything we're going to talk about in this mini series. And it's about when did you realize that we were going to be blurring fact and fiction so much? So we have the opening where it's the film within a film, but that film is on a TV set in the very, very well designed, detailed studio gaff of that director so many vhs just kind of tapes piled on top of each other and then they're going to somewhere to shoot this documentary there's a bit of trickery early on that i love where you have that um wide shot of the demolition of the studio and he's recording the vo and then the camera pans a bit too far and you see him in shot and he goes no this is meant to be vo you know lots of playful stuff there but when they finally go and meet the actress and she goes, "Oh, this takes me all the way back to when I was a child, and I wanted to become an actress." And already we have this intermingling of fil- the film world, and her own biography. Whenever I've watched this film, that's usually when I twig, "Oh, this is what the film's going to be." There is going to be this intertwining of fact and fiction. But you said you you, you were onto it from the beginning.
0: Um, I I think I, I include it like, as soon as you see the cameraman within the memory or the scene um which is which uh then i i, I kind of got what was going on there but i think he, he plants the seeds of it early on as well like even in in the pre-titles in the titles and even lines of dialogue like over that shot of the destroyed studio saying this can't be the opening uh, mm-hmm. you're getting all of this stuff that makes you feel like you need to prepare for questioning the reality that you're going to be in um And I thought in this case, it's it's more elegantly done than Perfect Blue, I think not that I don't think Perfect Blue wants to be elegant, but Perfect Blue is wanting to pull that rug from under you because it wants you to get inside her head and to have that fear of your own reality to just be ripped away from you and perfect blue is really smart for that but this isn't about psychosis and fracturing mentality this is for me about memory and the way that you can absolutely drift into a memory and come back out of it through the process of storytelling and that is how i think we see this storytelling and editing style that has been applied to one thing in perfect blue given a totally different context, but it's ultimately the same style and has a totally different effect.
3: Yeah. I think it's really interesting watching this film so close to perfect blue and seeing those same techniques used for a completely different reason. Like, and I think also the placing of uh, Tachibana and his cameraman um, in those scenes is really clever because you, you're you then putting them in the position that we were in watching Perfect Blue. So they're the kind of confused, disorientated viewers and we get to sit back and take in the whole picture and we can kind of see the inner workings of what's going on. And so, yeah, it's a completely different effect from Perfect Blue, but using the same techniques it's really interesting it is, it's, it's, it's
0: really impressive and I, I think that the cameraman as much as he is a great bit of light relief throughout he's a great surrogate for us as an audience to kind of not take those transitions that seriously in this in the way we might have done in perfect blue um like when they're in uh manchuria and then it, you're about to be like piling through a train but then you actually are at in the middle of a samurai film and he actually says what happened to manchuria and so he's he's asking those questions so we don't have to and just by giving us that relief letting us know that we don't need to be as aware as we might have been in the previous film
3: i think he really highlights the lengths that cinema can go to as well the fact that you can just change period you can just change location like that just with editing and you, you're suddenly in a completely different world um is the magic of cinema so he's he's answering those questions for us
0: yeah it's a real love letter um and i th- th- there's lots of references here that I'm, I'm sure people's eyes will be lighting up uh who are more familiar with classic japanese cinema but th- there's lots of references here for the fans aren't there michael
2: oh there really are and i think possibly the the two well certainly the one that is easiest to spot because i suppose the film is one of the ones more widely watched over here would be throne of blood that as you called it the samurai sequence where um she opens the door and she's on a train in manchuria but now she's in a palace that's under attack and going to have a a chat with an old witch um there's an actual shot where it's the poor cameraman who has all the arrows fired at him which is restaging the the iconic shot from Throne of Blood which is Akira Kurosawa's take on Macbeth where it's Tashiro Mifune you know, with, with all of the arrows in him um, that's there but this is the way that he's playing with film history in, in interviews I, th- I think um, and in Andrew Osman's book there's a lot of chat about how that side of it the, Jap- the journey through Japanese cinema side of the film is almost overstated because it's um, something that apparently Western critics are latched onto, and Satoshi Kon has says that he's by no means an expert in Japanese cinema. In fact, he, you know, likes watching you know Terry Gilliam films and films from the West. So he often had to go and watch a lot of these films himself to um, to pick these scenes out. But it does add this extra aspect to the film, as you say stuff about the the magic of cinema. There's so much we can talk about, and already I feel like we're splintering off in many different directions. Um, But there is something about using a famous star, in this case, the star that was an icon for a very specific amount of time and then went into hiding or seclusion or early retirement, and how she, because she lives on in our memory as this actress in films that we love and rewatch is therefore this emblem of a time and a period in a culture across the decades. The actress in the film is based on a couple of real life actresses. There's one being Setsuko Hara, who is was in um, Yasujiro Ozu's films. They in fact actually recreate a scene from Tokyo story um, with, with her in, but in some ways, she, you're, you're not supposed to almost invest in who this actress is because we are seeing it from the point of view of the director, who is a huge fan of her work. And this is him bringing almost another aspect from Perfect Blue over. It's how a fan and the fan's projection of the fan object, the star in this case, not the idol from the last film, that's the relationship we're seeing played out on screen.
0: But it's it's a much softer relationship than it is in Perfect Blue. In Perfect Blue, we are, we're seeing the worst of fandom right there. And it's like present for the experiences that a lot of famous people have today and this guy and the star their relationship is is more tender and seems to be understanding and she's not afraid or anything like that and it's a trip down memory lane for both of them really he's remembering the performances and watching them and she's remembering living them and to me she is picking out scenes and memories and telling them to him because those are the ones that were most affecting for her because of how they tie to her own life and so for me the read on the film was in a way an exploration of actor or terror theory and that we were seeing a lot of these performances that even though the films that they are in are markedly different and the genres are different and the makeup is different. The character has this similarity because we're seeing them in these moments linked to her lost love and they're the most powerful for her because they all stem back to this key and this romance. And that's actually a whole area of this film that we haven't even spoken about yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so putting the travel through japanese cinema aside what do we think of the treasure hunt romance side of it
3: i think the key could mean so many things she's first given it when she's kind of a a young teenager she hides um a rebel who's running away from the police in her cellar and he gives her this key and she's, she says, like, what is this? And he's like, it's the most important thing there is. And then kind of disappears for the rest of her life. And she's always trying to find him again. And she's using this key as the one connection she has to him. And I guess on one level, that is what the key is. It's like her memory of him um, and her reminder that he's out there and that she could find him. And then it, it has so many other metaphorical ideas behind it that... Um, could mean any number of things. I mean, for one thing, it's it just kind of it just drives the film. It's the catalyst for the whole film to play out. For one thing, I don't know how you guys feel about it.
2: So, th- this, this this is where my sort of I fly off and have a bit of a galaxy brain reading of this film. Um, you say that it's more elegant in the way that it weaves together facts and fiction compared to Perfect Blue, which was a much more sort of harsh harrowing film however i think this is a more intellectual film than emotional one so when we ask what actually is happening in this film i think it is less interested in the characters at play their emotional relationships the real story of this lost love that she has because and it all is because of that key and that key i think it represents everything in terms of it's the key to the story, literally so. It's the MacGuffin, it's the Rosebud, it's the Madeleine cake from Proust. It's the thing that drives everything forward. It's there in every film in some way or in every incident in her life, as that lost lover is, or some ghost of the lost lover, because narrative, storytelling, our emotional relationship with cinema is driven by wanting to find something and this is feeds into another aspect of this film which is the fact that she's always running she's always chasing something looking for something as the director is always looking for an answer that he finally gets but it's almost separate from the conclusion to the film when he finds out what happens to that long long lost lover millennium actress is a film about cinema it's about the actress talking about her life through her movies, but we're also seeing the movies in the movie industry played out through her life through the movies. And within that, we're looking at why we are so enthralled by cinema. N- name a genre, your mystery, your romance, your thrills, your comedy, all of these require some sort of lack, some sort of search, some sort of journey. And that's what we see when she's some incredible sequences here where she's going from the from a drama to a post-war landscape to Throne of Blood to a Zatoichi type samurai ninja action film all these things are being united by that search for something. And when she says that she is chasing shadows, couldn't that be a description of what we're doing when we see lights reflected off a screen, searching for an an experience? And that's what cinema is. That's my galaxy brain reading. um,
0: And please completely undermine that, Jake. (laughs) I, I... I would not dream of undermining that. I think that's a really lovely way of reading the film, but I just don't think that way of reading it comes through the first time that you watch it. And I apologize if I'm um, being uh, an idiot there. Um, but I think I can see how this film rewards you the more you go back to it. But I think the first time that you're watching it, because it does flutter around between all of these different things, as a viewer, you latch on to the plot that you can get. And that there is this thread that is quite easy to grasp at the start of lost love and in a odd biopic way going through someone's life in search of that. That, that is a very simple through line that sits on top of all of the subtext there. And for me maybe because it was focusing on ideas that you suggest there that are more in the realm of the intellectual than the emotional it didn't give me much payoff in the end and steph i wonder if this is the kind of thing that you were suggesting last week about why i might like the film um because there is there is like within the first 30 minutes like i was like scribbling stuff down like i love this i love this i love this um like is this a treasure hunt film is this a romance film love it i'm a I'm a sucker for a romance, as we established across 30 Ghibli episodes. Um, But this never came together in the final act to reward any investment that you might have in that side of the story. But I can absolutely appreciate the other reading of it. Steph? you can now undermine me and tell me why you think it does
3: work. <laughs> um, well, I think I think I do agree with that. Uh, the first time you watch it, you, you kind of grasp onto anything that seems familiar and seems to make sense, which would be this romantic through line and the characters. But then I think, yeah, re-watching it and thinking about it, it is more of a kind of love letter to cinema and to a country looking at their past through the medium of film and how that is kind of portrayed on film. Cause you, yeah, you go through her life in 20th century Japan, but then she's also going through way earlier in Japanese history through film. So I think the film feels more about that. Um, and then that kind of final, line the um after all it was it was the chase that I really loved um can refer to that um her just wanting to chase the the long lost lover with the key but it's also that the chase in film like the earliest films were yeah. chase films that you think about like why something like Mad Max Fury Road was just this kind of simple chase film and that is kind of what is at the heart of a lot of cinema and I think that final line um, really just encapsulates the whole feeling of the film also I thought you were going to like it because I feel like James Gray might have watched this film when he was writing Ad Astra (laughs) and that kind of end (laughs) blast off into space into the unknown uh, to reckon with herself and people that she's been chasing her entire life that feels very Brad Pitt reckoning with his dad who's just gone off to saturn that yeah that was I, I, I can thought. see i can see <laughs> that
0: and but i i think oh god i, I didn't think we would be getting into ad astra spoilers at this point uh, i suppose it was inevitable <laughs> um but i think what's wonderful about ad astra is that uh it, it for me it flips the uh identity of what a lot of space exploration films are about uh and that they are so they're so often about the um the kind of colonialist figure going out into space and claiming it and the joy of exploration and james gray films will look at exploration particularly in the lost city of zed and Al and just see that that there is cannot be that much value in that compared to what you have at home and the people that are there and the life that is there and that is why i found the ending of Al so powerful um and to me, this, that, that, that final line, because I wasn't so invested in the romance of it all, I felt like it betrayed some of the storytelling logic, because then I thought, well, if it was all about the chase, then why did you stop? Why did you go into hiding for 30 years? Um, and Michael, you might suggest because she literally lost the key uh and so if she doesn't have the key she's got nothing to chase and that's where he goes to... and i'm sure this is the joy of satoshi Kon films and we can do this podcast in a year's time and i'll watch it again and we'll do a totally different reaction to it
2: well this is something so i've seen it several times um and right in the middle of that was a time that i saw us at the cinema where they played it at the barbican center in london from a really beautiful print and that was the the viewing of it that really opened my eyes to the film and i wouldn't it, it will eventually come out there's a really nice new hd version of the film that will eventually come out in the uk i hear so we should take you to see it jake have a camera trained on you for the whole film and see if something sparks but okay just to take on board what you're saying jake i th- i think the reason why i'm pushed in this intellectual direction to really go deep on the 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 storytelling postmodern aspects here is probably because i think there isn't as much on the, on that story. I do think there's a flaw at the heart of it. Um, just sim- something as simple as with Perfect Blue, we knew what happened. We knew what the actual factual case was. Even though we were wat- watching things play out from a, 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 a psyche that was fracturing before our eyes by the end we knew that it was this character and people putting pressures on her the stalker was being manipulated by the assistant who was actually you know the the real force for for evil we don't have that objective anchor point in this film not to, and maybe i'm focusing on this too much because we're doing this chronology watching all the films back to back and this is one aspect that fascinates me is that when you say what actually happened in what the nineteen twenties to the nineteen fifties in her life? What <laughs> we, we know that there may have been this man, and he went away, and then later on, you know, he was tortured and died. And or, or, we have a couple of these snatches, but when, in these long sequences where it's playing with the films telling her life and her life being told through the films, what we're seeing is this midpoint between her memories, her films, and the fans projection of that and when they start interacting within the scenes and he starts trying to change the way the scenes play out where he appears as a supporting character that's so fun in the moment but i find it almost impossible to decode what the actual factual plot line is happening in front of us and that's what makes me think of films like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind where you're going into memory but you have actors within that memory recreating new memories or memories that never existed. and But then also there are those sequences where you have Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet's characters watching the memories happen in front of them and commenting on it. So it's all these multiple levels. Mm-hmm. But we don't have a firm footing in reality, which is, yeah, quite brain bending. And that's why I, I think that this in, in, inevitably is, for me, a much more complex film to understand than Perfect Blue.
0: And it's the fact that it's like 80-odd 80, 80 minutes as well. Yeah, a, doesn't yeah, do much to go it's, on. It, it's amazing. <laughs> um, and in, in that respect, it, it is incredible. Um, and I think you're right that without that sure footing, um, the the impact that the film can have on you is lacking. Um, I also think it, there's the big issue for any connection to it is the, there's there's a lack of character depth to her. Because, I mean, I can ask you both this question. Beyond loving this guy, who is she?
3: Well, I think it's kind of less about her having that character because Tachibana, the director, knows her as this actress and we, the viewer, only know her as this actress. I think it's kind of confronting how we have relationships with actors and celebrities because... I think while it yeah it's not overly emotional in the sense that something like Perfect Blue is where we feel like we know Mima, when an actor that kind of represents a generation of cinema dies, you get that, almost that loss of that history with them. It's like they're never going to make something else. They're never going to live that new kind of life in a new film again. That feels like what they're going for with her death to me and the way that we only the way that we know her is through her films so we're not gonna know her on this personal level because we're held at arm's length by the film so we're only getting to know her through the roles that she's played um, and that is pretty similar for a lot of celebrities and actors of that kind of age yep. that we know now
2: it's about cinema Jake <laughs> I'm, I'm doing a well how you uh... describe this hand movement <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um well i yeah God, there's just so much i had, like i had there was another version of this conversation where i can talk about how it's actually all about animation and that's why the the suitcase uh which is implied the key opens seems to be filled with paint and there's so much conversation about painting and how live action is painting with cameras um but animation is actually painting in which an animated film with a live action character um and and this could go on and on um and i really should put that all aside because we haven't talked about susumo Hirosawa and what he's been up to on those synthesizers because <laughs> the man <laughs> conducted a hell of a score
3: yeah i love the score i love how wild it is you're going through so many different types and genres of music um I love all the little refrains that keep coming back um I think the first time she meets the painter is like my favorite bit of music but Jake I know you love the bit where they're riding on horses and this synth music starts kind of blaring out oh, completely God. different from the era that it's supposed to be in
0: that's it I would love love it to see what he was uh, writing as he was watching those scenes, he's so like, okay, right. So we've got traditional samurai outfits. It's like this lovely landscape and there's fire. And it seems like it's like a very classical battle scene. It's like, okay, get the Marauder out. We're going hard. This is exactly <laughs> what this needs right now. Um a wild, wild score
2: um that I I really, really enjoyed. I'm glad you're loving his work so far, Jake, because some of his best, most over the top music is still to come. So Sit tight.
3: So, Jake, we've watched two Satoshi Kon films now. uh, And while it it wouldn't be much of a list so far, uh, if you were going to rank them in the popularity contest, what's going first and what's going second?
0: Okay. Um, I think that this is quite easy for me just because i think it was just such a tighter piece and uh, i think that your first time experiencing something and a new director is always going to be so exciting and like seeing this style play out for the first time rather than the second time is a bit more impactful um so i've got to put based on current watches perfect blue at the top and millennium mattress second would that be the same for both of you well i
2: i think i'd have to agree that they're, they're both Five star films, really, or close to five star films, in my estimation. However, re-watching them both for this, I, I think Perfect Blue edges it. It's it's a, it's a it's an ugly you know an uglier film, a more uh, grotesque film. Millennium Actress is a, is, a, is a bit more elegant, as we've said. But Perfect Blue, I think, takes you on more of a ride. Steph.
3: Yeah, I think I would have to agree. Um, although I think it is really close for me. Like every time I rewatch Millennium Actress, I get something new out of it. And I feel like it is a much quieter and more gentle film than Perfect Blue, but it has just as much to say. And it's just as kind of complex.
2: Final word on
0: this, Jake. Do you think these films work as a double bill? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, really good double bill. Um, and if I were to throw in a third feature into that, um, that makes things a bit more, even more child friendly, uh, throw in the Martin Scorsese film, Hugo, because if there, if there's another film out there that involves, uh, someone discovering a key that takes them on an adventure that ends in a love letter for cinema, that's the one to watch. Martin Scorsese loves his cinema.
2: (laughs) So next episode, this is possibly the most jarring hairpin turn, I think. Of the series, Steph, you might disagree with me. What do you think?
3: No, I feel like it's definitely the odd one out in the in the back catalogue.
2: So this is Tokyo Godfathers. Steph, can we give Jake anything to go on, a crumb to go on for until next
3: week? Uh, I think we can tell you it's a Christmas movie.
2: We're currently experiencing
0: thirty degree heat in the UK, <laughs> Christmas time. <laughs> oh, I'm very ex- very excited. Um, purely because I I mean it's it's got to be. Actually, in a way, if I love it, it's going to be frustrating because then I would have wanted to call this podcast Tokyo Podfathers. Um, But uh, let's just hope it's terrible. Well, we'll have to find out
2: next week. Until then, keep up with us on Twitter at Ghibliotech or send us an email. The mailbag is open at ghibli at little.studios.com. Or you could keep up with us individually. You can follow Jake at Jake
0: H Cunningham. You can follow Steph at underscore Steph Watts.
3: And you can follow Michael at Michael J Leader. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng. Our artwork is by Sophie Moe. And Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts, and Harold McShiel. Hi everyone, thanks for sticking through the credits. Now, Millennium Actress had a whole host of talented animators behind it. Uh, including the animation director, Kenichi Konishi, who animated one of the earthquake scenes. Now, he had a stint at Studio Ghibli before working with Satoshi Kon, and he worked on some pretty iconic scenes. He animated No Face chasing Chihiro through the bathhouse in Spirited Away, and he animated the violin recital of Country Roads in Whisper of the Heart.